This is Our Voices. I'm Mario Trimble. In order to be a place where everyone in our community feels valued and connected, we first have to ensure everyone believes they belong. These are Our Voices, a joint podcast production from the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusivity Joint Steering Committee. Our Voices shines a light on the unique stories, experiences, and backgrounds of our member leaders so that we can help each other walk together. Hannah Prof is a criminal defense lawyer with over 10 years of practical and policy experience. She has received numerous awards and other recognition over her career for her excellence in criminal defense and juvenile rights advocacy in particular, including Lyric, Learn Your Rights in the Community, the groundbreaking nonprofit she co-founded to educate young people about their rights and interactions with law enforcement. Spend five minutes with her, though, and you will realize that Hannah Prof is so much more than that. A neurodiverse learner who proudly embraces her own dyslexia, Hannah's passion for criminal defense sprang from an early school trip to an under-construction prison in her native Seward, Alaska. On this episode of Our Voices, our own Mallory Revel and Bonnie Schreiner sit down with Hannah Prof to hear the story of her path so far in her own words. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today, Our Voices. I'm Mallory Revel, a criminal defense attorney with Foster Graham Milstein and Kalisher. I'm here with my co-host today, Bonnie Schreiner with Schreiner Law. And we are thrilled to be meeting with Hannah Prof. Hannah is the founder and owner of Prof Law, a co-founder of Learn Your Rights in Colorado. She was in my Colorado Bar Association leadership training program class um, and has done many wonderful things in our community, including being a leader in pro bono work. So we are thrilled to be here with Hannah. Thank you so much for having me, Mallory and Bonnie. I'm really happy to be here. Great. So let's jump right in, Hannah. We want to talk to you a little bit today about a number of things, but let's start with who you were. Tell us a little bit about growing up. Of course. So I started my journey a long way from Denver. Um, I grew up in Alaska, a small town on the southern coast of Alaska called Seward. For the history buffs, it's Seward's Folly is the history of that name. Um, Seward was a coal town in the 70s, and then in the early 80s, that sort of ended. And the the town um, received the contract to build Alaska's largest maximum security prison. And so when I was, I was born in 1982 in this town, um, actually one of the last years they delivered babies in this town, a few years later that you had to start leaving town to get, have a baby delivered. So one of the last um, generations of people actually (laughs) born in Seward, Alaska. And um, so they started building this prison. And as my parents tell it, I was obsessed with the prison, and I remember (laughs) that. I just, you know, who's going to be there? How do they get there? Who decides that they go there? How long do they stay? I mean, just any question you could come up with about prisons, I had them. Um, We visited the prison um, before, obviously, inmates were inside, and, you know, I think other kids were kind of running around and just playing, and, oh, look, a gym, and, oh, look, isn't this cool? And I was sort of measuring the windows with my fists and kind of imagining what it was like to be in a cell and um, asking all of these very carceral questions about kind of the prison industrial complex. Clearly didn't know that language as a young person. So my parents are both um, 
eventual high school graduates. They, were, they weren't they um, were definitely not college educated when I was growing up. My mother did go back and get her bachelor's degree around the same time I did, which I'm very proud of. Um, but, you know, I grew up sort of my dad was a ship captain and a government employee and sort of getting a job where you could have a pension and work for the government was sort of what was, um, you know, modeled for me. There were, I think that there was only one lawyer in Seward, and he didn't live there full time. There is a magistrate, and I actually tried to Google this morning whether or not a magistrate Peck was a lawyer. I know some places that you can be a magistrate without being a lawyer. So there was a magistrate. He unicycled around town. But other than that, (laughs) I didn't know any lawyers. So I didn't, I don't come, there are no lawyers in my family. I didn't grow up with any lawyers. Um, And so when I was, had this young obsession with the carceral state, I wasn't sort of understanding that I wanted to be a criminal defense attorney. I didn't have that vocabulary, candidly. But when my parents sort of suggested that I would probably want it to be a detective based on my obsession with crime, I was horrified. Like, I don't (laughs) want to be a detective. That's not the point here. You know, I want to be on the side of the people who go into the prison. And my parents were both sort of like, (laughs) hopefully she'll outgrow this. So here we are, you know... um, Thirty years later, (laughs) (laughs) Um, living the dream, right? So that's sort of where I come from. I graduated from Seward High School, um, and then I got out of there. I couldn't get out of there fast enough. Um, I went back a few summers ago only because it was my husband's 50th state. He hadn't Mm. been there yet, and I wanted to help him with that goal. But um, I always say, unless, like, my sister's kids or my godkids, somebody, like, desperately needs me to be in Alaska. I've had my 18 years was long enough for me. Are your parents still in Alaska then? No, they're not. Yeah, they moved. They left um, after after my sister got out of high school and pretty much relocated to Hawaii full time. Yeah. So the two extremes there. Yeah, you know, Hawaii and Alaska are a lot closer than you think. You know, the map makes it look so far away, but it's actually a pretty quick flight over the water there to get to Hawaii. There's a lot of deals. You can imagine Alaskans love Hawaii for understandable reasons. You get to visit them in Hawaii very often or not? You know, I haven't been there in a while. My dad is really leaning on me right now, but I'm so nervous now that they've reopened. But I haven't traveled since COVID. I'm pretty anxious about it. The idea of an eight-hour flight with a mask on is sounds like a, a nightmare to me. So I do, in normal times, I get there to visit, usually for over Thanksgiving. Yeah. Continuing with growing up, I know that you are a neurodiverse learner. Tell us a little bit about that, if you would. Of course. So... I'm dyslexic, neurodiverse learner. I'm very proud of my dyslexia, um, but it took me a long time to get there. I'll tell you, first of all, um, in the early 80s in rural Alaska, they weren't diagnosing dyslexia. I don't want to say they didn't understand dyslexia. I don't know that. They surely didn't know enough to diagnose me with dyslexia. Um, You know, when I was having a very hard time grasping phonics, grasping letter, um, evaluation and symbol recognition. I remember Asteroid, the alien, would bring letters to kindergarten class, um, and everyone else seemed to get it. And I was like, hey, Asteroid brought an A. And I was just really not connecting the dots. with. I could kind of say my ABCs, but it was more of a rote song to me than like recognizing letters, um, which I now understand is part of my symbol um, and learning disability um, and just how my brain works. 
But the school district's response in Alaska was to sort of suggest that I go into special education um, and take kind of an alternative route um, and not and be outside of the normal classroom a huge amount of time. And and I don't want to I don't want to say anything. Special education is wonderful, and especially now for neurodiverse learners, having some targeted help is amazing. But they were more wanting to kind of remove me from the normal classroom and put me onto a whole different track. Um, and my parents, you know, really fought for me to be stay in the classroom. And eventually, we were in went to other states um, for sh- short amount of time. And I, I had some, you know, tutelage, and I learned to read. And really, that was a breakthrough moment for me because I, um, I learned to read much later. I, f- I find myself often at kind of back in the day before when we had dinner parties and things like that. You know, <laughs> people either. saying their kids were reading books at three or saying they read books at four. And I always pipe up with, well, I didn't really read until I was seven. So, you know, it all works out, right? Um, And I read more than um, most people. I think I just finished my 58th book since March during COVID. So I love to read. I clearly read all day as a lawyer. Um, So once I figured it out, I really got it. Don't get me wrong. I have moments where my dyslexia have really bad days. I have some things that I do to help me kind of refocus if I'm having a day. I also have just a really hard time with spelling and with numbers. My family, people who know me really well will laugh. You know, if I text an address, I'll like look down later at the text chain and my husband will be like, I think she meant 119, not 116. And my sister will be like, yeah, it's 116. Hannah dyslexic it, right? Like, you know, people react. And similarly, there have been moments in, I've even been in the courtroom, right? Where I continually get a number wrong and an officer or someone. And, and I will just, you know, say if it's the right time, not in front of a jury, like, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm neurodiverse, I'm dyslexic, and I have a really hard time with numbers sometimes if I'm fatigued. It took me a really long time to get there. Um, My spelling is also not amazing. My husband actually has this joke. He has a list on his phone of all the different ways I've spelled cauliflower, which, (laughs) believe it or not, there's a lot of different ways one can spell cauliflower. I still don't quite know how to spell it. Um, But, you know, I'm not a great speller. And when I started as a trial attorney, I have a, a... huge dose of imposter syndrome. I'm finally feeling like I'm getting out of it. But then as soon as I feel like I'm getting out of it, it crushes me again, right? And so I sort of, you know, went to law school and I was like, well, this won't work. I'll finally be exposed for the, you know, you know, first the person I am, I'm not going to get through it. Then I succeeded in law school. Okay, well, it the fall, it'll all crash down around me at the bar, right? Okay, I get through that. It'll all crash down on me once I start practicing law, I won't be able to do it, right? And so then I'm practicing law as a young public defender. I'm doing fine. I'm doing well. And then I went to try my first homicide. And, you know, Mallory is a trial attorney. You know this. When you're in the heat of trial, you're passing a lot of notes, right? You're back and forth. Ask this question. Sticky notes are everywhere. And you handwrite those, right? Because you can't, t- mm-hmm. you know, a little bit more now we maybe G-chat and stuff, but usually it's handwritten. I've still got t- the sticky yeah. notes everywhere. Exactly. Because you don't want to be on G-chat. You know, it's just a lot. I do say with my Apple Watch, I'll get like a message and that's a great way to, it'll pop up. Someone's like, object to that, you know, kind of thing. It's like, oh, thank you, friend who's in the gallery, right? Or listening on WebEx now. Um, But, you know, and I was sort of like, okay, this will be the time. I'll try this two-week homicide with this really famous, amazing trial attorney, Fernando Freire, who's one of my dearest friends and um, one of my, my mentors. And, you know, and he'll realize I'm an idiot because I can't spell received or cauliflower if that came up in a murder case sort of doubt it but it could (laughs) you know I'll spell cauliflower like 
an idiot and he'll be like, Hannah's an idiot. Right. And so we get through the trial and there were times I wrote notes and you're just so in it. You don't think like I just spelled receive incorrectly. Right. Or whatever word it is. And at the end, you know, we're having a drink kind of waiting for the verdict or after the the trial. And I was like, I'm so sorry about my spelling. Like, I feel like such an idiot. I'm glad you were able to read everything. And he looked at me and he's like, you're spelling? He's like, some of those notes you passed me were these great questions that I hadn't thought of or just that question I needed or just that reminder. I never noticed the spelling. I could read it all like, you know, and it just was this moment of remembering, like, not everyone is as hypercritical of you, Hannah, as you <laughs> are of yourself, right? And um, so now I'm just, you know, more comfortable with myself. Uh, I was, like, closing on 40, closing on 12 years of practicing law. And I just tell people, like, look, we're going to hang. I can't spell very well. <laughs> Sometimes so poorly that even spell checks, like, what is that? I don't know. Unrecognized word, you know? <laughs> and... It's just, you know, whatever. It's just me. So so jumping ahead, obviously you graduated college, graduated law school, and you end up with the public defender's office. Aside from your fascination with prison, what, what led you down the path of public service? You know, I... I have always wanted, I've always been an underdog person, whether it was the person being bullied when I was a kid um, or, you know, just every situation I wanted to fight for the underdog. It was a roundabout path to law school. I mean, I knew I wanted to work in the prison industrial complex. I honestly thought initially I wanted to be a social worker and do felon reentry, um, specifically potentially in the indigenous um, community because growing up um, around a lot of Athabascan folks and seeing the kind of over incarceration of indigenous Alaskans, um, that was a real interest of mine. Um, and so then I discovered that I loved advocacy and the power of the courtroom. So when I decided to go to law school, I was like, I'm going to sue prisons. You know, that's the way to make the change, make them pay, right? Um, that's how we get to kind of prison abolition and, and some of these big ideas that I, you know, I read Angela Davis's our prison was obsolete when I was 16 and just my mind was blown, right? <laughs> like, we're going to do it. Like, I could do, we could do this. And then I, I interned with the public defender's office and I fell in love with advocacy. And I always loved clients. I've always loved that um, selfishly, just that, that time with them. I mean, one of the things I've missed the most about COVID is not being in jails and prisons because I love that no, inter no internet, no emails chiming. It's just me and my client like dialed in for that three hours um, behind the prison door or whatever it is. And um, I miss that because now I'm on Zoom and the emails still pop up. And, you know, to some, in some ways it's nice because my clients see me, you know, you're not allowed to wear your normal clothes. You can't wear your jewelry at prisons. And they don't, you know, they see a glimpse in a safe way. Of course, I feel safe with my clients almost always, but you know, they see into my house, into my space. Like I've gotten to show my dogs, right? Like <laughs> I hope that's okay. I'm, you know, I don't think any prison officials would be mad about that, that I've lifted a Scotty dog up to show a, <laughs> show a client, you know, cause for some of these people, I've known them for years, right. And mm -hmm. they hear about my dogs, they hear about my life um, a little bit, but, um, so I fell in love with trial work candidly. And I was like, this is what I want to do. And I see how I can make a change on an individual level within the system. Um, I later, as you know from my, my resume, went into policy work. I sort of 
um, got burnt out from being a trial attorney after seven years as a public defender. And I thought I got a little bit back to my roots. And I was like, maybe I need to try policy, try systemic change. I did that for um, two legislative sessions. I really loved it. I'm very proud of what we accomplished as a team, not just me, um, you know, juvenile life without parole reform um, after the Miller-Montgomery decisions in 2016. We ended mass seclusion of children in juvenile justice facilities. We, you know, changed, made it easier for juveniles to expunge their records. All of these reforms that I'm really proud of. Candidly, I missed the the client communication. I missed the courtroom. Um, And so then I shifted back into trial attorney work after a few years off. Have you ever thought that legislation or being a legislator or being in the political realm might be in your future since you were able to affect such enormous change in the um, juvenile sentencing arena? I think I would be a terrible politician, Bonnie, because I practice (laughs) radical candor. So I say it exactly how it is. Not to mention, I'm not an expert in very many things other than juvenile justice. So they'd be like, it's time to talk about fracking. And I'd be like, oh, I better pull up that one New York Times article that I read that was very informative, right? I just am not, I'm really not a jack of all trades. And I like that about my life, that I can have this sort of hyper-focused, um, passion. And I always say to people, I say to people I mentor, you pick your thing and I'll pick my thing and I'll have my cohort and you have your cohort and we'll make change because, you know, the little tiny incremental change I can make in my one career, my one little life, right? If we all have those passion projects and legislators, it's so important and they do such amazing work. I just sit back and I'm amazed. I'm like, How can you know so much about so many things? And you know, they used to have to shake. I was a germaphobe pre-COVID, um, mm-hmm. so all that handshaking, mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm out right there. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think politics are in my future. Tell us a little bit about your journey from the public defender's office now to where you are as the founder of your own law firm. Yeah, I, you know, I want to say for all those people who um, maybe haven't started networking yet, I want to tell you that I didn't start networking as a lawyer until I'd been practicing for five years. And there's a few reasons behind that. First of all, I just didn't know any better. Um, Being a professional wasn't modeled for me growing up, although my father was successful in his career and my mother is an artist and a creative and a, a homemaker and an amazing person. They didn't have social networks. I didn't see them network, go to professional outings, things like that. I also it was modeled to me that you got a government job and you sort of stuck with it until you retired. When I started to realize maybe I don't want to be a public defender for 25, 30 years, even though it's incredible the people who do that, I sort of looked up and realized, oh, my gosh, I don't know anyone who's not in this little <laughs> world of mine. And I also didn't go to law school here, which is, t- huge. is huge, right? Um And so I always laugh now, here we are 12 years into practice, my DU friends think I went to DU and my CU friends think I went to CU. And I'm always like, (laughs) I didn't go to law school here. You know, it's such a, you know, almost everybody, as you know, is, is kind of from these amazing schools. And so... I looked up, I kind of didn't have a cohort from law school. That's all in California. I didn't um, have a cohort. I wasn't part of the women's bar, part of any um, diversity bars. Um, And I was like, I've got a network. 
And so I had just met my now husband at the time. And, you know, I was like, I've got to start networking. And so I started going to these events and I wouldn't meet anyone. I wouldn't talk Mm. to anyone. And my husband, I would come home. I'd be like, no one talked to me. And he'd be like, what? No one? And, you know, I'm like, pretty much, you know, I'd try (laughs) to maybe break into a conversation. They'd all say hello to me and then it would get insular again. Right. And So, but I think what my point there is just keep showing up because now here I am 12 years later, I'm on the women's bar, almost any event, um, that I went to in the legal community through Cobalt, through other organizations, I know, I'm going to know somebody. And I also will tell you that from my experience, I'm the person who's always bringing someone with me who maybe doesn't network as much or drawing people in who are maybe new to the crowd. Cause I know how the legal community can feel insular just because we're so happy to see each other, right? It's not that Mallory and I don't want to meet other people. It's that we can't wait to talk amongst ourselves. So all that to be said, that's sort of a long answer to your question there. I didn't have any options to get a job outside the public defender's office. I applied for jobs at about five years and just didn't get any responses. I started networking really started putting myself out there and, you know, getting re-engaged with things I cared about in the community that weren't um, public defender related. And that was how I was able to then transition into the policy job because I built that network. Similarly, when my policy position, the nonprofit lost funding and we were, we all got laid off. And then the people I had networked with in that time was then how I got to Johnson and Klein, a law firm in Boulder. And that I spent two years there as an associate. And then I opened my own law firm two and a half years ago. And so that's sort of my path. Was there a time when you were welcomed that was memorable to you in in this law profession, trying to trying to have some recognition so that you can network? Yes. Um, I'm going to do another name drop here because Patty Jarboski is just one of my heroes and one of the most incredible people in the bar. Um, I have a very strong memory of being at an event early on where Patty was sort of like, what's your deal? And when I told her and, you know, told her that I was just starting to network, you know, and she was sort of like, okay, you've got to meet this person. You've got to meet this person. Um, So that really stands out. Other people who were, you know, and I also found pretty quickly, like maybe the big you know, event, the, the holiday party is not the best first event to go to all by yourself. <laughs> yes. Maybe a committee meeting over the lunch hour. Cause then, you know, everybody's excited to have another worker be, and they're going to welcome you into the fold. So I all, also very quickly kind of found that the smaller venues were easier to make those connections. And then I just started to know people. Then, you know, your smaller group and you go to the big event and there's your crowd. And yeah. Did, did you choose a mentor? At, at any particular stage? So I have... Or did a, someone choose you? <laughs> I have a number of mentors. Um, I'm very lucky in that sense. For the first five years of my career, my only mentors were within the public defender's office, incredible humans and litigators. I have maintained some of those relationships and I keep them on kind of my personal board of directors. I also now, I mean, I have many different mentors for kind of different situations. Um, you know, I recently had a conflict with someone that I work directly with and I wanted to have a healthy conversation with that person and kind of nip the issue 
you know, before it, it festered, especially over Zoom. It's so easy. We're all cutting each other off and we're all, it's hard to read body language. Um, and so I called a specific mentor who I really appreciate how she builds relationships. And I was like, how do you recommend this? Similarly, I have a very good friend, not a lawyer, um, who I think of as a mentor kind of in my personal life. Like she's the person I go to when I'm not being present with my husband because I'm stressed with work. And like, she's the one, you know, I kind of want to have a marriage like hers and 40 years sort of thing. So I think of it as my personal board of directors and kind of, I don't have a kind of one, someone who fits everything. I do have a mentor through the, um, women's bar association. And that's been an amazing through the program, the mentor program there. And that's been a great thing. I love, love, love the term personal board of directors. How is, so if this is really resonating with someone and, you know, maybe they're a younger lawyer, they don't, maybe have a personal board of directors, maybe like us, they came from out of state, something along those lines, you know, got into public service and stayed there. Um, what advice would you give to someone who is looking to network and to build this personal board of mentors? I, I would say be direct about your needs. There are times when I go to folks, even before they're on my personal board of directors, and I just put out front, like now in this Zoom time, hi, so-and-so, you know, so nice to see you at X, Y, and Z or hear you speak. I would love 15 minutes of your time over Zoom to brainstorm this issue that I'm having. That way they go into the meeting knowing what you want to address. It's not sort of, why is this person on my calendar, right? So I would just do that. If you see someone in court really addressing a client well and you're struggling with client relationships or you see someone who seems to be bringing in a ton of business and you're struggling with business development or whatever it is, ask, be formal with what you want from that person. Because I get these emails sometimes, it's like, I'd love to have a coffee or have a Zoom and again, I go into the meeting and it's sort of like, I have to remind myself, did I ask for this meeting or today, <laughs> right? Like, and again, I'm happy to do it, but I love when someone sort of says, I'm thinking of starting a nonprofit. I want to talk to you about the top five steps you think I take, or I want to get into leadership. What are your, I'd love to talk to you about your favorite books or, you know, or I'm having an ethics dilemma. And I, you know, so I love some guidance when people reach out. So I'd say start slow. You don't have to have this big, you know, I, I built my big group of mentors over years. So start slow and just approach people and then formally ask them, you know, can I come to you when these interpersonal issues come up with people? Because this was really helpful. Most people are going to say yes. And if if they don't have the bandwidth for it, then better for you to know that up front so you can find someone else to fill that role. That's great advice. Let's transition to talk a little bit about the nonprofit that you co-founded, Lyric. Tell us about that. Thanks. Yeah, Lyric is, um, I started in 2009 with Michael Juba, who's um, one of my dear friends. We we litigate a lot together. We run Lyric together. We were baby public defenders in the same courtroom, so we really grew up together um, in the legal world. And Michael and I were in the juvenile unit of the criminal, you know, the juvenile public defenders unit um, in Denver. And, you know, we just started to see all of these children who had interactions with the with police and they had no idea what their rights are. And so we we're like, wouldn't it be great as sort of an extracurricular activity for us if we started teaching young people about their rights before they entered the system or hopefully they never enter the system as just, you know, active and engaged citizens who need to understand the Constitution. 
And so we really started as a pretty hodgepodge, just grassroots. We'd show up and come up with different flyers and things and, and just talk to whoever, whomever would listen. We have since, you know, um, in 2015, we became a 501c3. We are a part of the curriculum in 65 schools across Colorado, after school programs. Pre-COVID, we taught between five and seven presentations a week. And our presentations are 55 minutes as long as a class period in school. And it's really kind of our tagline is bringing the law to life in Colorado classrooms. And so the whole goal of a lyric presentation is to hear from a lawyer, from a law student, how the fifth, sixth, and fourth amendment apply in a young person's life from police encounters, consensual searches, right to remain silent. You know, the statistics and the data are startling. The, the statistics say that 90% of young people who are interrogated by the police waive their Miranda rights to remain and, and speak instead of remain silent. I mean, the rates are high for adults, high six, mm-hmm. you know, high 60s, low 70s. A lot of adults do this as well. But it's so fun to teach a lyric presentation and see that light bulb like, wait, I don't have to talk. Like, really? I have that. You know, it's empowering for young people to know that. And especially, I'm not a parent, um, and I don't plan to be a parent, but I know a lot of people who are parents, and people have a, you know, truth is a big part of raising a child. I understand that, right? Um, and, and, you know, I understand with my nephews and my godkids and everything. And, you know, so kids are trained, like, tell the truth and it's better. And cops know to use that, right? You know, and parents, yeah, you should tell them what you did. You do this, like you should tell them what you did. And so, it's really great to meet kids where they are in the classrooms and after school programs, and um, you know, teach them about their rights. We just changed the name of Lyric from Learn Your Rights in Colorado to Learn Your Rights in the Community to expand, hopefully, outside of Colorado. Um, and so, it's it's growing and it's exciting. It's a really fun. Um, thing. It's a, it is a passion project. I, I will tell you that, you know, on average, I work about seven hours a week on Lyric, um, which is a big kind of unpaid job, but I love it. Is there outreach to greater Colorado with Lyric? Great question. We have tried and we have done some work in El Paso County and in Larimer County. It's hard to it has been hard for us to engage volunteers first of all in El Paso our volunteers keep getting put on the bench it's like stop getting promoted volunteers <laughs> we need you at Lyric for this unpaid volunteer gig right but you know um it's it's harder first of all I think that our lawyers outside of the metro area are so there's there's so much to do because there there's fewer lawyers right and so they're tapped in so many different directions um, and so it's just been hard for both for us to engage with the schools because I'm so far away because that's a lot of just administrative, you know, meeting with administrators and talking to teachers. It's harder to get done out of out of the metro area. Eventually, we would love to have an executive director, not me. It's not my dream for myself. I would love to um, hire uh, particularly a diverse candidate. I mean, candidly, the majority of the students we reach are black, brown, and indigenous students. I think it's very important once Lyric ever has the money to pay someone that 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 person reflect the community that we serve. Um, So as soon as we have an executive director, that will be a huge thing. You know, a huge part of the job is expanding. Are you looking to any greater Colorado uh, entities to try to be an outreach for you, or is that just in the wind right now? 
it's really just finding the right, you know, if we have someone who's really dedicated for a while, we had someone up in the mountains who wanted, you know, kind of moved from Denver and wanted to do it up there. And while she was up there, we had some programming. It's really just finding the people who want to take it on and bring it bring it to their communities. It's, it's helpful to have an insider because it's a lot harder for me to sort of email, like, I'm from this organization based in Denver as compared to I'm your public defender downtown Salida, right? Like, and we want to come to your school with this cool program. It's an easier conversation. So I've heard you say a number of times that you run a mission-based law firm. What does that mean? So I, when I, when I was left to start my own law firm, I really took the time to think about the things I loved doing in all these, not all these jobs, these three really great jobs and some, even some internships from, from law school. And I thought to myself, I have the power to create the culture, the culture of one, right? I always <laughs> laugh that I either have the best, depending on the day, or the worst boss. One of, this is just a side note. You can feel free to edit this out. But Prof Law allegedly has breakfast burrito Friday. And it's this joke. So does Foster Graham. But it's a great actually, thing. But someone actually probably buys them for you. <laughs> I just think all day and I say to my husband in the hallway now that I work from home, it's breakfast burrito Friday. And he's like, Hannah, it's three on Friday. And no, there's no breakfast burritos in sight. So I rarely actually get it together. So it's sort of this <laughs> reminder of like, if the culture is bad at prof law, I have like one, <laughs> one woman to blame. Right. Um, but when I started the firm, I, you know, I sat down my, I have a mission statement for my firm. Again, it's a mission statement for one person, but still it was really important to me that I start with the right kind of ethos and mindset. And one of the first things I decided is I'm not going to take cases that I, I'm not going to take the work that I don't love just because I need work because I'm starting out. And one of the funniest things that happened kind of week two, you know, I'd opened my own law firm. Here I am open for business. And I got a call, a referral for a DUI. I haven't tried a DUI for 10 years, and I didn't like them much when I tried them. I don't think I was particularly <laughs> talented at DUI defense. I don't try DUIs. So I referred the case to someone who's fantastic and does DUIs. And that person then called me. I think there's a mistake because I just got a referral from Prof Law, and Prof Law has no clients. And I'm like, part of my mission statement is I'm not going to take work that doesn't serve me. It's, you know, it's not good for the client. It's not good for the community. And I trust if you refer work, work comes back to you, the work you want to do. I also love to do pro bono work. I love to represent indigent defendants. I became a lawyer to serve people who um, need ju to, justice is deserved and there's, they lack maybe the power or the money or the authority. To, and I wanted to help those people um, gain access to justice and to freedom. And so my law firm, 40% of my work is alternate defense counsel work. So indigent defendants. I only take juvenile homicides and sexual assaults and juveniles who have been direct filed. I will every once in a while take an adult homicide uh, as well. But I only take the big litigation because that's what I love. Um, you know, I'm not the right person for an alternate defense counsel drug case. Like, I just don't like lower level cases for that work. I'd rather really dig in, really know the client, do really good mitigation. I love mitigating. I love getting to know clients' families. That's the work that serves me. Um, then about, you know, 35 to 40, depending on how busy things are, percent of my work is private 
criminal defense. Um, I have some kind of areas that I really like to take for adults and I do a lot of juveniles, a lot of juveniles charged with sexual offenses, violent offenses, things like that. I don't take a lot of adult cases I don't take. Again, I have this robust network. I can give the best referral list in the history of the world um, (laughs) to someone who calls me that I can't help, right? Um, And I'm just not afraid to do that. I Just this week, I got a call, a big retainer for Prof Law, you know, someone who needed help with a a federal, um, you know, pre-file indictment. I do a ton of pre-file work on the sex assault side of my private practice. I love that. But I don't do federal work, really, and I don't do this work. And although I'm not all that busy right now, I still referred the case out to someone I respect and who does it better than me um, because that client deserves that. So I really think, I hope, and I, I do see that it comes back around, that people, you send them the big case that's just right for them, and then the case comes across their desk that's really just more right for you than for them, and they think of you, right? And I love that about the legal community. And then a solid 20% of my practice is purely pro bono. And that's where the kind of mission, I think the alternate defense counsel and the pro bono being 50% of my practice or more um, is where I get the mission based, right? Um, And there I take cases from sort of multiple sources. And I always have a lot of pro bono work. I have a really hard time saying no to pro bono work. I'm like, if you have a sob story and you email it to me, like, don't abuse that. Like, don't use this podcast to abuse that because I will probably, you know, I will sometimes get an email and not realize the email was sent to others and I'll take the case and be like, oh, I got that email. And I said no. And I'm like, oh, you know, smart sort of, but also it's such great work. So I volunteer a lot with the light representing women who were um, tra- human trafficking survivors, who are human trafficking survivors, some of whom are still in the in the midst of being trafficked. Um, I represent children, helping them get their records expunged and off the sex offender registry through the Colorado Juvenile Defender Center, which is my old employer. Um, I right now have an allocation of parental rights case through Metro Volunteer Lawyers. I know we have a we have a family lawyer in the room. I know she's she's like blessing me, which I need. It's uh, it's been quite oh, it's it's been a tough it's been a tough case um, for me, and and it's not my world, so I've had to learn so much. But luckily, they gave me an incredible. Um, mentor through, um, Metro volunteer lawyers will give you a mentor if you take a case that you don't know how to take. Um, so Mindy from Chancho Chancho Brown is my, um, angel in the background of telling me how to practice family law. Thank goodness. Um, and I, I do other things too that I represent protesters. I just closed a protesters case in through the Black Lives Matter protest through the National Lawyers Guild. Um, and I love it. I love, I love doing, um, pro bono work. It's really nice to not have to think about billing and just Mm -hmm. litigate. And, you know, I recently said to someone on a pro bono case, like, I know I'm not getting paid, but like, I'm not, I'm also not going to cut any corners. You know, if we have to go to this week long allocation of parental rights hearing, I'll figure it out. You know, I'm going to show up. I've got luckily Mindy's a thousand times smarter (laughs) than me in the background telling me, you know, how to do things. So, um, I, that's what a mission-based law firm means for prof law. Um, So in addition to your passion for pro bono work, you're also very passionate about mentorship in the legal community. Will you talk a little bit about that? Yes. I need my board of directors to survive. And I also feel like 
I need to give back by being on other people's board of directors. Um, right now I have, and, and actually for the past few years, I've had this situation where I have a DU mentee in every class. So I have a 3L, a 2L, and a 1L. <laughs> um, so I always take a, a, a student through the DU mentorship program. One thing I will tell you about this, and I don't know if you will like this, me telling you this, it's an amazing program. Get involved if you're not. But I emailed them and just said, because I, I got matched with this corporate lawyer one year, and she's amazing, and she's thriving, and she's out in the world at a big firm. But we had nothing in co- I couldn't really help her. You know, I was like, well, I kind of know a person you might want to know more than me, right? And so I said to DU, if I'm going to do this, I'm not a DU alum, so I'm not doing it for alumni engagement. You know, I am an adjunct professor there. I love DU. But, you know, I, I want to do it if you can match me with students who at least think they want to do work with juveniles or criminal defense or something in my world. So right now I have three amazing women who are again, 3L, 2L, 1L, Paloma, Katie, and Raylan. And first of all, the more mentees you have, the easier it gets, because I kind of push them off on each other. I'm like, (laughs) you should ask Paloma, since she's a 3L now, and I was a 3L 14 years ago. You're not pushing them off. You're training them how to mentor the next generation. I'll send them this podcast. They'll they'll (laughs) love that characterization. Right. I'm I'm helping them. I'm co-mentoring alongside them. Co-mentoring. Right. Um, I also mentor through camp, the, um, the great program that Ryan Payton runs that's just phenomenal. And I have a really wonderful woman that I co-mentor. I mentor alongside another lawyer right now. Um, and I get asked out a lot on mentor. I would say that I'm on multiple people's boards of directors. Um, and I'm also, you know, always just telling, I'm always hooking people up with my network. I'm a really, I love to do that. Like, oh, you need to know this person. You two will be perfect for each other and really being thoughtful about that. I, I think I want to highlight being thoughtful about that because sometimes people delegate some mentorship to me where I'm in the meeting and I'm like, why am I here? I think it might just be that the lawyer who sent this person to me just didn't want to deal a little, you know? And so it's like, if you're going to, I think if I'm going to send, you know, you need to meet Mallory or you need to meet Bonnie, it's going to be because I have some real concrete reasons and I'm going to do an introduction email and get them excited to kind of connect. Because for me, the broader my network has become, the more diverse my network has become, the better I am at referring at getting work done and just at, at having a really happy life because the bigger your community is. I love being a lawyer and, you know, so it's great to know other lawyers. So as we're winding down, one of my favorite things about you, aside from you being a brilliant lawyer and just a really genuine and fun person, you are a wonderful storyteller and you have an incredible bank of hilarious stories. So would you share one of your favorite stories with our listeners? Oh, man, one of my favorite stories. I really do have quite the arsenal of stories. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I'll tell this one. You could feel free to edit it out. I love Tracy Chapman. I love Tracy Chapman kind of more than anything ever that ever existed. She's so amazing. And Tracy Chapman was just making the rounds in the media because 
she sang talking about a revolution on some late night shows leading up to the to the um election i almost said leading up to the revol- revolution um <laughs> election <laughs> revolution <laughs> um, and oh, Freud. i would say that Although I don't think talking about a revolution revolution is Tracy's best song. Um, I will say, I mean, I get why other people do. It's an amazing song. And so I have followed Tracy on tour. I'm like a diehard fan, (laughs) right? I, I know all of these facts about her. When I moved to San Francisco... I went to the makeout room, which is this bar in um, in the Mission, and I was like, I'll give $100 to every bartender working if Tracy cho- shows up to play a show, right? Because she'll sometimes show up. She's famous for showing up there. And if you text me at this number, I will pay every – I will come with money, right? <laughs> I just love her. And so uh, I've been thinking about these stories that I also know that Tracy Chapman is an introvert and she doesn't like to be recognized. Um, You know, she doesn't like kind of fans. I used to, when I'd go to her shows and there'd be the people who are like, I love you. Like she kind of hates that, right? You can see it. It's written all over her that she hates it. So I have had two situations (laughs) where I have interacted with Tracy Chapman and not alerted her that I was such a fan. (laughs) One time she was lost and looking for this place called Secret Sushi in San Francisco in a neighborhood I lived in. And we walked two whole blocks together while I showed her where Secret Sushi was. And I didn't out myself as a fan (laughs) because I knew that she would feel weird. I mean, was it like the best two blocks of my life? Score. Uh, (laughs) Yes. And another time that's pretty funny um, from a law school perspective or lawyer perspective is I was one time acting as a fair housing tester for massive litigation housing, fair housing litigation in California. And what you do when you do that is you show up. I am a you know, a white woman, Jewish woman, um, uh, who is, and I'm, I'm, you know, I, I don't have any, uh, apparent, um, physical disabilities, right? Um, like we talked about maybe neurodiverse, but I'm not in a wheelchair or anything like that. So I would show up with another volunteer as kind of the nice white couple to apply for the apartment. And then they would later send, um, different folks, depending on the issues the, that the housing, place was potentially having, they'd send them and then they would see if we got the same kind of response from the landlord. And this was part of this, this was a volunteer opportunity. And so I was in character and I'm not (laughs) much of an actress, but I take things like this very seriously. And Tracy Chapman came out of nowhere right near where I was doing this fair housing testing. And she was like, don't I know you? You know, we had this like kind of moment where, cause she had another question. Anyway, all that be said, I played the role and I stayed in character for housing wow. testing and I didn't. So I feel like we're almost friends. I mean, I <laughs> love Angela Davis. She's friends with Angela Davis. Like I almost feel like we've run in these same orbits, but it hasn't connected. I don't know if that's the best story, but Tracy's been on my mind. So we've talked a little bit about where you've come from, where you are now. So we have to ask, what's next for Hannah Prof? That's a great question, um, Mallory. I, I have a really hard time answering it candidly. I Not that long ago, my, my partner, my husband said, you know, when Prof Law turns five or something along those lines. And I said, well, how do we know Prof Law is going to turn five? Like, I have a little <laughs> bit of maybe commitment phobia, even though I love my job. I'm always sort of like... I don't know if I'll be a lawyer in five years, even though I have no other plans. So (laughs) I I think the way I can answer that is, um, and I thought about this leading up to this, um, I wish I could tell you I wanted to have this particular job or 
wanted something. But instead, I'll tell you that I my goal in five years is to be living the same way I'm living now, which is, I think, really highlighted by this Toni Morrison quote. I, I adore Toni Morrison. I think she's brilliant. And I love this quote that she says. I'm going to read it. Um, I tell my students, when you get those jobs that you have been so brilliantly trained for, just remember that your real job is that if you are free, you have to free someone else. If you have power, then your job is to empower somebody else. This is not just a candy grab bag candy game. Anyway, it's just I love that idea that I I have so much power in the world. Um, and even though I face my difficulties, I spend a lot of time unpacking the power that I do have um, and the little bit of influence that I have. And my, my really my goal right now is to lift up other lawyers um, from diverse backgrounds, lift up law students from diverse backgrounds, mentor young people. I forgot to mention I also mentor high school students, um, particularly black, black, brown, and indigenous young people. And so, again, I'm so lucky to be free. I think of that every day, both free from Alaska and free physically. <laughs> uh, I'm free from some other things um, that I, I want to bring that. I want to harness, continue to harness that power and privilege I have and, and pass it on. Mm. So, That's so powerful. Thank you for sharing that with us. You're such a powerful person in this world. Thank you for all of your work and, and your inspiration and your welcoming way. To, to take on other people and help them. That's impressive, particularly when you said you had some difficulty with that uh, yourself when when you were just entering and that Patty Jarzowski and others had to had reach out to you, and that's what you were waiting for, and now you're doing it for others. How grand. Thank you. Of course. Thank you so much, Hannah. This has Great. been wonderful. This has been Our Voices. For more information on today's guest or to get involved, please check out the CBA podcast page at cobar.org slash podcast. That's C-O-B-A-R dot org slash podcast. This podcast series was created by members of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. Our Voices is a collaborative effort of the EDI Joint Steering Committee messaging team including Mallory Revel, Linda Moss, Bonnie Schreiner, Mallory Hasbrook, Mo Watson, Mario Trimble, Courtney Holm, and Emmy Lopez, with our CBA Communications Team Director, Heather Folker, and Manager, Charles McGarvey. Our recording engineer is Rick Pontelion of Lionsbridge Recording. Our producer and editor is Courtney Holm, with theme and introduction by Mario Trimble. This podcast is made possible because of the support of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. On behalf of all of us, thanks for listening to Our Voices. Our Voices.